You're listening to the Faith and Other Oddities podcast, brought to you by the Raven Creek Social Club, where we talk about faith and other oddities. For questions, comments, or to be part of the conversation, join us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where you can find us at Raven Creek SC. Now for your hosts, Emily Dixon and Nathan Underwood. Everyone, welcome back to Faith and Other Oddities. We're glad you're here. Um, we're continuing this week with uh, Hannah and Samuel. We just finished up on her prophecy last week, mm-hmm. and we're going to finish that up today, I think, and yeah. move a little more into early life of Samuel, I believe. Well, yeah, we're we're actually, um, Hannah's going to kind of, you know, basically fade from the scene at this point. We're, we're not going to talk about her too much. She's going to show up one more time, and we're going to focus now on Samuel and the events that are going on at Shiloh. So this is where things kind of start to get a little um, juicy. I mean, you get that that wonderful uh, story of Eli's sons and what they're doing. And we're going to see where this really becomes a point where Hannah's prophecy is about the the events going on at Shiloh. And it isn't just about having a child. And it's going to kind of flesh that out a little bit more because I've been saying this, but I don't think we see a lot of the writers support for that until we get to this section. And so we finished up in verse 10. That was her, that was her song. That was her prophecy. And verse 11 tells us that Elkanah returns home and that Samuel is ministering to the Lord before Eli. So it's acknowledging that Eli is his mentor. Eli is going to be Samuel's guardian. He's Mm -hmm. going to be the one who takes care of him. And, you know, this makes sense because that's one thing that's always bothered me since I was a kid. How does the priest have time to, to take care of a kid? Right. But if you remember back at the beginning of the chapter, we find out that Eli's not, or the beginning of chapter one, Eli was not the one actually serving as the priest at this time. He'd already retired. He maintained a honored position at Shiloh, but he, he's not actively engaged in the work of being a priest. So his, his two sons are doing that. And as we go through chapter two, the writer is being really smart. And there's some things going on that if I hadn't read commentaries that pointed it out to me, I wouldn't have noticed. So I'm pretty certain other people aren't noticing. But there is this deliberate setup of compare and contrast between Eli, Eli's sons and Samuel. So verse 11, we have Samuel ministering before the Lord. <laughs> And then, Sorry, no, I, mean, I heard the kids. They're having fun today. It sounds like they're having a, a blast out there. <laughs> exactly. So. so, okay, so verse 11, we have Samuel ministering before the Lord. Verses 12 through 17, we have Eli's son and their perversion of worship, and we're going to go into that. Verses 18 through 12, we have Samuel and his parents. They're being blessed. And then verses 22 through 25, Eli and his sons get what a you warning. Mean 18 through 21. Uh, you said 18 through 12. Oh, yeah. My my numerical dyslexia kicks in because I actually wrote down 12, 18 through 21. Yeah, because the next section is 22 through 25. Where yeah. Eli and his sons get the warning uh, and the implied curse for their actions. And then we, we wrap up with Samuel. Okay. And so that's I wanted to kind of tip you off to be looking for that because that's what we're going to see as we go through. And so in verse 12... It says, now the sons of Eli were worthless men, literally, b'nai b'lial. 
Okay. I was wondering about that. Yeah. It's, it's right there. Now contrast that with, with Hannah who says, don't mistake me or mm-hmm. don't give me to but Leah, the daughter of Leal. Right. So major contrast immediately with Hannah and Eli's sons. And it says that they're Ben Abelial because they do not know the Lord. They do not know Yahweh. Remember, if it's all in caps, uh, when the Lord is written out in your Bible, that is Yahweh in Hebrew. Gotcha. So the name of the burning, burning bush, I hadn't mentioned that in a while. I thought we might remind, that, remind people of that. So uh, these are the same words used to describe the men of Gibeah. These are the same men who, who did that horrible thing to the Levite's concubine. And, you know, we all know what they did, and we know how awful it was. It, and they are acting just like a part of the culture they're a part of. They aren't being the spiritual leaders that they're supposed to be. They did not know the, the Lord. The word there is yada. This is the Hebrew word for experiential knowledge. Um, this is the word that's often used of sexual knowledge. So when mm-hmm. Adam knew Eve and she conceived and bore a son, the the Bible is specifically telling you, despite the fact that they're in Shiloh, they're before the Ark of the Covenant, they're offering sacrifices, they still don't recognize who God is. Recognition is a huge part of the biblical narrative, and I'm just beginning to pick up on how much that is a part of the biblical narrative, mm-hmm. and not being recognized, whether it's a woman or it's God or it's a, an individual, because we're actually going to get into where Samuel goes to anoint David. He doesn't recognize David. Well, so, I, okay, so talk about rec- you talk about recognition is uh, a large part of this. So mm-hmm. I'm curious. Uh, I don't know if, the, if this is reaching. If, if there's any kind of you know when Paul writes that you know God r- reveals Himself in the world like mm-hmm. through nature, there's a natural revelation, and so those so everyone's without excuse, right? And so that would. Is that kind of a tie to like kind of this great sin being not recognizing God as the authority? I think that's a lot of it because when you go back to Old Testament sins, uh, we go right back to the garden. The the Adam and Eve they didn't recognize the snake for the threat that he was, and they didn't acknowledge God as the ultimate authority. And this leads to doing all sorts of things to achieve power and prestige and and to gain illicit mm-hmm. knowledge and. These are all things that God says, don't do. Right. I, I'm the one who's going to raise you up. And that's the reason why Hannah is so powerful is because she recognizes God's the only one who can make a change. Right. And she's not saying that she can do it. She's saying, I want to be a part of it. Yeah. And that's, that's huge. And I think, like I said last week, we need to take that into account in our own lives and look at what is God doing around us and how can we actively become a part of it? What do we have? That, I mean, yeah, it's a small thing, but if we give it to him, what can he do with it? And so Hannah's the most powerless woman around, and she's, she has no prestige. Uh, where Eli's sons, they're the most important people around. Mm-hmm. They're the one who, they're supposed to be facilitating this relationship with the God of the earth and the God of their nation. Mm-hmm. And they're not doing it because they don't know him. So. Um, yeah, there, there's, there's a lot going on here that, that shows you how the themes of the Bible, they're consistent throughout from Genesis to Revelation. All of it ties back together, but you've got to be looking for the threads that hold it together. So verse 13 through 16, this goes into some details about how they are disrespecting the sacrifices and how they're 
uh, treating the sacrifices with contempt. And basically what they're doing is they're, they're taking meat from the sacrifices before its time. And again, this is a major theme in the Bible, taking things before its time or taking things inappropriately mm -hmm. because the meat was theirs. It was always theirs, and they were going to get to eat it whenever they, the ceremony had been concluded. Mm -hmm. And they just, they couldn't wait. They didn't want the boiled meat. They wanted meat that was raw so that they could roast it. And then when the people the, who were offering the sacrifices would come up and say, don't do this, at least wait until the fat's burned, because the fat had to be burned. That all belonged to mm -hmm. God. When they would say, don't do this, then they would threaten these people with violence. And, you know, we're right back there in Gibeah with those other worthless men or the sons of Bleal. And this is really sad because this is telling you that the people still faithful enough to come to Shiloh to offer sacrifices actually knew more about how to appropriately honor the Torah than the spiritual leaders did. Right. And, you know, that, that's kind of a word of warning. <laughs> and we, we need to be taking that to heart. Um, so you're saying it's not a good idea if the people who are supposed to be in the spiritual positions know less than the people coming to be part of everything. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I really, I think there's, there's a problem there. And, uh, you know, I'm not saying that if you don't know everything, you're disqualified from leading people in spiritual endeavors, but you should recognize that your job is to learn more and continue to learn more so that you can increase in knowledge. Mm -hmm. And that increase in knowledge isn't to make you puffed up. It should actually be humbling about the things that God has done on your behalf. Right. And that's where, again, Hannah, she, she exalts in God and she, she has this great moment where she's praising him because she recognizes he's allowing her to participate. Mm -hmm. And I think too often when we get in leadership positions, we think, oh, well, now I'm running the show, and that's not the case. So, verse 17, it says, Thus the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. So, they're contemptuous. They, they, they are not giving the proper honor. Verse uh, 18 and 19 is where we get that shift back to Samuel. Mm -hmm. And Samuel's ministering before the Lord. He's wearing a linen ephod that Hannah is bringing to him every year when she comes to to do the sacrifices with her family. And now, I just I'm yeah, real curious here. <laughs> uh, I'm sorry. I'm I'm working over the story, and this just kind of occurred to me. It's kind of like I I do wonder though if if of the people. So I wonder if we might have had like those kind of self perpetuating cycle that the priests are are not doing things the way they're supposed to. Mm -hmm. And so maybe fewer people are coming. Right. And so maybe they are feeling a bit greedy because fewer people are coming. Mm -hmm. But then because they continue to do things incorrectly, fewer right. people. I, I'm just, just well, going to throw that out there. I'm just curious if this is the cycle. I'm not. We know that Levites were not staying in the cities where they had been assigned. We have the wandering Levite who stumbles across Micah. Right. Uh, we don't know where the Levite, um, with the Levite and the concubine, why was he where he was? What, what's going on here that these Levites are wandering around the country instead of attending to the duties of worshiping mm -hmm. God? So there may not have been enough food coming in. There may not have been enough to sustain the Levites as a tribe. And yeah, I, 
I think one of the things that contributes to that is when we have corrupt leadership, then people do tend to fall away. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and that I think I know I was asking myself the question, have I left situations where I had problems with leadership too soon? Should right. I have stayed and been a part of the solution? Uh, you, you know, I that was a question I was asking myself at the time. And I, I think I did the right thing uh, eventually because there comes yeah. a point where staying is tacit approval. Right. But at the same time, um, maybe we need to stick around and we need to be going before the Lord and going, hey, there needs to be a shakeup. How do we help with this? Mm-hmm. And how do we help leadership be better? Can can we do that? Uh, I, you and I have both had those situations oh, yeah. where we've wanted to help leadership, but people may have had the wrong idea about, you know, who we were and what we were offering or, or yeah. who they were. And yeah. And I don't want to get too far into that. I was just, I, it's just the, the way everything is. And mm-hmm. I'm sorry to interrupt. No. And, and the, that's what we're I know doing. You were ahead, but I'm just, I'm just really, um, that, that, that it's interesting to me to think of what, what was going on? So well, and there's a lot of information, and I think this is a lot of information that's still pertinent today. And I think picking apart the story this way and asking, okay, what is going on, and how do we not fall into that same trap? Right. And because we don't want our leadership to be benevolent, we we want them to be sons of God. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and that's that's the thing when Hannah brings the linen ephod to, to Samuel to wear. This is the customary garment of a priest. And she's actively clothing her son in the destiny that she has seen for him. Mm-hmm. She's still investing in him. And, and I wonder, you know, how do we replicate that? Are we actively clothing people in the destiny that God has called them to? Or are we mm-hmm. investing in them the way we should? And her investment isn't a controlling investment. It, it's a very, here's the gift. Mm-hmm. Now I'm still stepping back. And I think... Again, there's something there in that, I think, for us to, to actually be able to invest in someone and then let them continue the path and, and make their discoveries about who they're supposed to be while empowering them to do so without controlling it. So um, verse 20 and 21, it says every year that Eli would bless the couple and pray that God would grant them children. So Eli still thinks all oh, this is about kids. He mm-hmm. he doesn't realize what's happening, and I kind of I kind of think of it as like you know they talk about you know Samuel serving and and doing the the mm-hmm. stuff in the temple. It's kind of like, hey, let's pray God gives you more of these. Maybe we can get <laughs> get some more help up here. Well, you know Pharaoh, what was his reaction when um, Joseph's brother showed up? Hey, if one Joseph was great for the kingdom, mm-hmm. eleven more is going to be sure awesome. You know, yeah. <laughs> and so. There could be that because there is this really strong tie between Hannah and Samuel with with Moses. And mm-hmm. there's going to be a very direct link made back to Egypt really quick. So um, the, this, the point of this, though, is to remind us that, okay, number one, Eli's blessing them with new kids. So he's not getting it. Mm-hmm. Um, but then it specifically says the Lord visits Hannah. So each of these children are supernatural children, that these are a product of God's direct intervention. This is not because Eli uttered some kind of magic spell over her. Right. This is because God chose to act. The other thing uh, it tells us is that, you know, she has um, five more kids. She has six kids total. And 
this is to remind us that that prophecy, that word where she says, you know, that the barren have born seven and the, the, those who had children are now forlorn. It wasn't about her. Right. And don't make that mistake. I've heard so many women go, oh, well, yeah, God blessed her with seven kids. No, he didn't. Read further. Right. Stop, <laughs> stop reading when you get to what you like. Because if you, uh, we t- spoke with Becca Lavelle yesterday and she was talking about in archaeology, you, if you find what you like, you need to keep pushing. Right. And the scripture is a lot of the same way. If you find something you like, you probably need to keep going. So, yeah. <laughs> but the, this also demonstrates that despite the fact that leadership was corrupt, God's still at Shiloh. God's still active. He's still moving. He's still present with the people at Shiloh. Because if he had abandoned Shiloh at this point, he's abandoning Samuel and uh, he's abandoning people like Hannah. And so God's still showing up for the people who are still worshiping him and still seeking him, even though the leadership is corrupt. And I think that's something we have to remember in America, where we, we've got all these scandals that are going on with church leadership now. It doesn't mean God has abandoned us. He, he's still there. If you're looking for him, you're going to find him. Mm-hmm. But it's up to you to keep, keep looking for him. And um, so verse 22, we, we go back to... Um, Eli. And it says, now Eli was very old and he kept hearing all the things that his sons were doing to all Israel and how they lay with the women serving at the entrance of the tent of meeting. So once again, that's a tip off that, you know, the tabernacle as a cloth structure still exists in some form. Um, So this is one of those clues that tells us what the structure is. But notice he kept hearing. This isn't a one-off rumor. He's getting continual reports that his sons are doing some horrible, horrible things, and their actions are impacting all of Israel. It's not just the people at Shiloh. All of Israel is being infected by the evilness that's going on with his son. Now, it says they lay with women at the door. So that lay with women, this is the same word. That is you, Potiphar's wife uses when she approaches Joseph. It's when the laws about when a woman's raped in a field in Exodus twenty two sixteen. it's that same word there. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the same word used of David and Bathsheba. It's the same word in the rape of Dina about Reuben and Bilhah and Amnon and Tamar. So there's this implication that this is not something that the women are doing willingly, that they're being coerced. And you got to remember, these are women serving the, the, at the temple. So these are devout women who want to be in the presence of God. And this is the price they're having to pay to be near God. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. This is horrible. Yeah. And, so you, you, yeah, it's some exploitative type yes. of language. Yes. And because every time this word is used, there, there's either a straight up rape or there's an attempted rape or there's something wrong with that sexual situation. It's not a good situation. And you got to remember, the sons of Eli were also called the sons of Belial, just like Gibeah. Rape is their birthright as sons of Belial. Mm -hmm. And this is not, these are not people you want in charge. And you, you have to ask, how many times did people come to Eli and say, this is what your sons are doing. To, they did it to me. They did it to my daughter. They, but they didn't, he didn't move because 
for whatever reason, there wasn't enough evidence. Mm-hmm. We don't want to give the church a bad name. We don't want to cause a divide. I, I've all the excuses. We know them because they're in the news today. Mm-hmm. And so Eli's not he he's not stepping up. But but notice that where he is, he's he had been sitting at the chair at the doorpost, right there where it was happening because they're doing this at the entrance of the tent of meeting right next to the place where Eli was sitting. Is it saying that it's happening at the, at the entrance mm-hmm. or that, or that it's with the women who serve at the entrance? It, it seems That's how I kind of read it was like with the people who are serving or with the women who are serving at the entrance that it's not necessarily that it's happening at the entrance. So I, I, I've, I may be most of the commentaries I've read seem to to take this that it is happening at the entrance. If it is, that's completely horrifying. Right. Well, but, if it is, then you're looking at like adopted pagan practices. Probably. Precisely. We're looking at, at some kind of um, temple prostitution going on under the guise of, or under the name of Yahweh. The other thing that if even if it didn't happen directly there, if these women are in that close of a proximity to Eli. Why isn't he seeing how devastated they are? Mm-hmm. Why isn't he seeing the damage that's been inflicted on them? Because sexual abuse and violent survivors, they they carry themselves differently. And he, you know, we already saw he could look at Hannah and not see her. He He doesn't acknowledge the women. Right. And so this man, he's not capable of seeing, but he can hear. And like I said, this is going to be a huge problem because he's actually going to pass this, this quality down to Samuel. And we're going to talk about how this becomes an issue in Samuel's own life. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And uh, matter of fact, Samuel actually becomes, um, becomes blind right. by the end of the story. So when you factor all of that in with, with who Hannah was and what she'd seen and the things that she knew in her life. Now her going to the temple becomes just this act of courage and bravery. Mm-hmm. And it's not just because no other women go to the temple. She's got to go past Eli's sons. She has to, you know, basically run the gauntlet to make it. Mm-hmm. And so she's, she's so brave. And I think we don't, we don't appreciate that. And so, you know, we've got to stop reading this with the bias that good Christian women or good women of faith, where we're talking to Jewish women, are, are, are timid and little weak things. They're not. So, mm-hmm. but, okay, so verse 23 through 25a, uh, he said to them, why do you do such things? This is Eli talking to his sons. Why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil doings from all these people. So again, all these people, how many people are talking to him? He says, no, my sons, it is no good report that I hear the people spreading abroad. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? So Eli's heard the report. Again, all the people who, who, who is coming to him? How many times does he have to be told mm-hmm. that you need to act? Um, well, I think it's very interesting, um, and you, this may be where you're going, but I think it's interesting that this, that uh, Eli asks, if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? Mm-hmm. And, and I find that to be a very interesting contrast when you have 
a prophecy of the Messiah in the previous chapter. Well, uh, in the same earlier in the same chapter, mm-hmm. it's a very interesting juxtaposition knowing what we know about uh, Jesus. Right. Because uh, let me, I've got it here. Um, it is. Well, I mean, if we're going to get to it later, we're just, okay. we'll just get to it later. Well, just, okay. Like I said, I might be jumping ahead, but go ahead. But we'll... no, it's, it's a good point because this is the question. I mean, it's a major question. So, before we get there, the two things to remember, sexual sins and sin and sacrifice were considered abominations. These mm-hmm. are the only two things that that term is applied to. Right. So Eli's sons are guilty of both these things. And Eli, as the father, has the right and the obligation to bring his sons before the elders to have them stoned. He mm-hmm. should have, if not burned, I can't remember, burning might be one of the things that happens for... Um, Sacrificial sin. Yeah, we, but, we'll, we'll look it up and post to it. Yeah, because uh, as the father, you know, we, we talk about rebellious children in, in earlier in the Torah, and we, we've discussed it before that we aren't talking about a five-year-old who's refusing to eat their, yeah. their peas. Yeah, because in the Torah it says, yeah, bring him before the, the elders and say he's a drunkard, a drunkard and a glutton. Well, I don't know many drunken five-year-olds right. who are drunk on anything more than like either sugar or... <laughs> right. Uh, you got to hold some caffeine. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. And see, the, the fact that his adult children, with full knowledge of what they're doing, they're in sin. They're bringing shame upon Eli's house, and they're also bringing shame upon God's house. Eli should have enacted justice, mm-hmm. and he didn't do it. So um, a lot of times, if that question that you were asking, you know, if a man sins against the Lord, who will intercede for him? A lot of commentators jump straight to, oh, well, that has to do with the sacrifices. They aren't, they don't really factor in what's going on with the women. Mm-hmm. And the thing is, if you go over to Psalms 51, four, this is David. He's writing after Bathsheba and uh, the incident with her child had died. And, you know, he had, whatever happened there, we're going to get there eventually. We're going to look at, the, at what David and Bathsheba, what that incident was. But he knew he had sinned, and he says, against you only, he's talking to God, have I sinned, and I have done what is evil in your sight. So David's saying that his sin against Bathsheba was also a sin against the Lord, that, mm-hmm. that the sin against women is a sin against the Lord. Right. It's not just, oh, well, they screwed up the sacrifice, or they were disrespecting the sacrifice. The, treating the women bad is mm-hmm. a sin against the Lord. So now what you were talking, Eli's question, you know, it applies more broadly to us all because we all need a mediator between us and God because right. we've all sinned against God. Mm-hmm. The, the Bible's very clear. Job, in his book, he recognizes this need and that's what he's relentlessly pursuing. I and mean, he's bringing a legal court case against God, mm-hmm. a complaint, just like Hannah did. He's saying there's something wrong here. It needs to be fixed. Why aren't you acting? And he's asking, you know, he asked him one, a couple of the verses, and I didn't look them up, you know, who, who can intercede for me? Who can mediate between me and God? And he continues this until God himself shows up. Right. And I love that. That's actually one of my favorite things about Job is he continues until God shows up. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, so often I think we, we stop. We stop short. We go, okay, well, we tried. And where Job's like, uh-uh, I'm not turning it loose. Right. And so I think some of us need to persist a little, a little further. But Paul tells us in 1 Timothy 2, 5, one mediator between God and people, the human Christ Jesus. So 
Jesus is the answer to this question that's been plaguing Israel since the dawn of time. Right. He he's the one that that says, yes, I will constantly be before you, before my father, pleading on your behalf, talking to my father about you. All of these great things that we need because human priests are fallible. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And we're seeing this right here in um uh, in Samuel. Right. So the thing is where God, you know, he shows up for an individual with Job, Jesus is available to the entire world. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's why the, the New Testament revelation of God, it, it's greater. It had to start in the Old Testament, but as it begins to, to grow and be established, now we're, we're, we have reason to celebrate. It, it's just that much better than the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. So, and, you know, it kind of hurts me to say that because I love my Old Testament so much, but. Yeah, <laughs> I understand. I mean, well, it's. They, I mean, it, who was, I was listening to someone the other day and they said that, you know, we, in order to understand the gospel, we have to have a good understanding of the problem. And, you know, we're, we're definitely getting that well, uh, the, through this study. Yeah. The Old Testament, that's the thing. It tells us there is a problem and there's a problem with a religion that God is not intimately involved in. Mm-hmm. And, and that's what Hannah is addressing. She's saying, I, I want to be near you. I need you to be present in my life. And we really see in Samuel throughout the whole book where God shifts from being this great being far away up in the heavens to being a God who is intimate and he is Mm -hmm. personal and he will respond to the individual. And Hannah's the only individual who's ever blessed by a priest. Mm -hmm. So we're, we're starting to see that shift in perception. But We've got to think about where they came from. And they, they came as slaves from Egypt, where God was embodied by Pharaoh. They never stepped foot in Pharaoh's palace unless it was to clean the floors. Right. You know, it, and probably not even then, because you don't have Hebrews who were ab- abominations to the, the Egyptians because mm-hmm. they were shepherds. You, you would have uh, other nationalities or other Egyptians serving in the palace where the Hebrews were, were kept away. Mm-hmm. So their idea of God had been shaped by that. Mm-hmm. And I think we forget that, you know, when you've got 400 years of slavery, this does impact your view of who you are. And I think we can you, you see the evidence of that even in our own society when we start talking about race relations and slavery in America and what people who, you know, who've had ancestors in America who were slaves. What does that look like? What, mm-hmm. what do they still cling to and, and fight against in their own identity? So why would we think that the children of Israel would be any different? Right. right. We, we, we can't step away from the fact that people are always people. I don't right. care what time period you're talking about. So, um, Verse 25b says, but they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of, Lord, of the Lord to put them to death. Uh, another way this can be translated, it pleased the Lord to put them to death. Mm-hmm. So we were talking about this in the last episode, that God is the one who, he, there are times when he says, I, I'm going to take somebody out. Now, the pleasure's not in the death, the pleasure's in bringing justice to the situation. Because that's exactly what needs to happen. Justice needs to happen if God is going to be vindicated and God's going to be manifest in the situation. If evil continues to rule, then why are we serving God? And there's, mm-hmm. there's always going to be this point in history where God intervenes and says, enough's enough. And eventually that point is going to be the, you know, the end of the world as we know it. And it's going to be the second coming and the, the uh, eternal reign of Christ. But 
until then, we, we have these smaller reversals. But even though this is a smaller reversal, this is huge in the history of Israel. And, you know, the thing is, Eli's sons, they're without excuse for what they're doing. Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, their, their dad was a priest. Their dad was a priest. Their priest, they've been trained in what is right and wrong. They were supposed to be the spiritual leaders uh, of Israel. And so God's not killing them because he wants to kill them. He's killing them because they chose this. Mm-hmm. He's mm-hmm. not letting them get away from the consequences of their actions. And God doesn't let us get away sometimes from the consequences of our actions. And we need to remember that, and particularly if we refuse to hear correction and we refuse to act on the words of correct, correction when they're given to us. Mm-hmm. And so then the writer flips us right back. We've got Eli's sons who won't listen that God's going to kill. Verse 26, now the boy Samuel continued to grow in stature, in stature and favor with the Lord, also with men. So we've got that, that great contrast going on. And, you know, Eli's sons, they're, they're terrorizing the community. They aren't growing in favor with men. Right. And Samuel's doing the exact opposite. And, of course, this connects us back to Samson with Judges 1324b, and the young man grew and the Lord blessed him. Mm-hmm. And we talked about how that also connects us, and Samuel even more so, with Luke 522, and Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and favor with God and men. Right. Now, this is a reminder that Jesus is going to be that prophet, priest, king, and judge. And Samuel's the one who initially inaugurates the, the new kingdom, the, the foreshadowing of what that's going to look like here on earth. Mm-hmm. It, it's not the total completion of, of what Jesus is going to, to accomplish, but it's pointing us that direction. Mm-hmm. What mm-hmm. happens when we live in a society, in a kingdom where God is being represented, God is being served, God is being glorified by not only the spiritual leaders, but also the political leaders. What, what does this look like? And even more so, what does it look like when Jesus is the king who enforces his justice? Right. So the, these are important questions that I think we need to be thinking about. But what I found interesting is if you're going to talk about Jesus and women in the Bible, you're going to go to the Gospel of Luke. Women are like center stage throughout the Gospel. Uh, there, there's so many of them. I mean, we open with strong women in the Gospel of Luke. We begin with Elizabeth, mm-hmm. and she prophesies over Mary, calls her blessed among women. And this connects us, of course, right back to J.L. We talked about that when we, when we went over that. Um, then we, we move to Mary, who sings the Magnificat, uh, and that is directly patterned on Hannah's story, mm-hmm. if, if, or pa- patterned on Hannah's uh, prophecy. The, the same imagery, the, this reversals, this is what Christ is going to accomplish. The, these direct reversals where the, the weak are going to be raised up, the powerful are going to be brought down. And, it, and again, not, oh, well, the, the weak are also going to become strong or the, the starving are going to be fed. Mm-hmm. It's a full-on reversal. And Jesus continues that in his ministry. You know, the first is going to be last. And, you know, these, this idea of reversal, it's so huge because... We're talking about a society when we discuss the marginalized, these aren't just people who 
you know, have some kind of lesser standing in the community because they they don't look good, but they can still go to your grocery store. These are people who can't go shopping. Uh, mm-hmm. They can't participate in temple life. They can't even be with their families sometimes because they they are outcast. And I don't think we understand how deep that divide really is in this ancient culture. Because today, I, I think you know there might be somebody that we kind of you know in the grocery store we might kind of skirt around not to be too near, but they're still allowed in. And they can still participate in the basics of society, even if they aren't everybody's favorite person. Sure. So, you know, th- there's, a, it, there's a difference between then and now and in how the, the marginalized looked and how they were treated. But after, after Mary, you get Anna, who's the prophetess at the temple, who also prophesies over Jesus. We, mm-hmm. we don't know exactly what she said. Well, why not? Because we already know. See, Anna in Greek, actually has a breathing mark over it. Mm -hmm. So you would say Hannah. Right. So Anna and Hannah, you automatically got that connection. So the tradition is that Anna's words that Luke didn't record were the same as Hannah's words in Samuel. Interesting. And they're both, you know, of course, both prophetess, they're both both at the temple. And so that's that's the three women that open the story. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. And then, I mean, we can, I mean, there's a whole list. Peter's mother-in-law uh, gets healed. Uh, the widow in, in the crowd, so you, who grabs hold of the, the edge of his robe. Mm-hmm. Uh, the woman who wept over his feet, or the woman who wept over his feet. Uh, the widow's son who's raised. Jairus' daughter. The woman who's healed on the Sabbath. Mary and Martha. The widow with the might. The 12-year-old girl who's healed. And then on top of that, when Luke shares a parable... So often he'll, sa- he'll share a male version of the parable, and then he includes a female version of the parable. Mm. And Luke is the only writer who does this. And then, of course, when you move into Acts, then you have all the women that are named in, in that book. Right. And so the- this is important for us to actually think about um, the significance of women within the Bible, but within Jesus' ministry. and it's. So fascinating to me that this begins with the prophecy mm-hmm. of a woman. So, verse 27a, well, we'll move on. I'll quit harping on the women, but I mean, this, it just made me happy the more I get to thinking about mm-hmm. it. Um, 27a, and it says, And there came a man of God to Eli. Um, a man of God, it's an idiom, he's a prophet. Right. So, we, we've already seen this before. Uh, Manoach's wife said, you know, a man of God came to her oh, and he looked like an angel. And it kind right. of was that gradual uh, realization that this is not an angel. This is just a prophet. He doesn't have a name. Now, traditionally, this is said to be Elkanah and that Elkanah was the one who came to Eli and said, hey, there's a problem. And in some ways it makes sense because if he's been living with Hannah, he just sent his son off to live at the temple. Mm-hmm. So maybe he, you know, maybe he clues in and he says, hey, it's time for someone to speak up. Yeah. I and, didn't send my son here so he could learn to exploit people and, it, yeah. and sleep around. Yeah. And the thing is, it would not be uncommon for a prophet to be married to a prophetess. Sure. So this was, this was kind of normal in that society. Now, the scripture does not specifically say who it is. We, ha- we don't have any idea. 
one of the reasons why the name would have been withheld if it was Elkanah is he's coming in the role of prophet, not as Hannah's husband. Because as Hannah's husband, he's kind of been pushed to the edge of the story. Mm -hmm. And he hasn't been center stage. So now it's not important that he's Hannah's husband. I mean, like I said, if this is true, um, it's important that he does hear from God and he's willing to speak up on behalf of God to, to right a wrong, which is really what the prophet's job was. The prophet's job was to speak truth and justice and call for repentance. And this is what this, this message is. So I'm going to continue. So the man of God said to, to Eli, said, Thus says the Lord, did I indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when you were in Egypt subject to the house of Pharaoh? So basically what's going on here, he, he's pointing back to the beginning of the story. Eli's house goes back to the time of Pharaoh when the people were in Egypt. And remember, Hannah's calling for a new exodus. She's calling for the oppressors of the marginalized to be removed from power. And she said, this is what's going to happen. And this is an introduction to a major subplot in Samuel that's going to kind of play out under the, it's going to be buried underneath the story of the, of the monarchy. But it's very central to how history is going to be shaped. So we got to do a little background work. Um, the The text isn't really specific on a lot of things because the writer expects his readers to know. Mm-hmm. They, he doesn't fill in the blanks for, for his audience because, I mean, again, he doesn't expect people in Oklahoma in 2020 A.D., to, mm-hmm. to be sitting and reading this. He expects people from his own time and culture to, to be reading this text. Sure. So what we do know, because there, there's a lot of gaps, uh, we know that Aaron had four sons. Uh, the oldest two were Nadab and Abihu. Now, these were the two that in Leviticus 10, they offer the strange fire mm-hmm. and they're mm-hmm. killed. So they're out of the running. So that leaves the other two, two sons. And that's Eleazar and Ithamar. Mm-hmm. Okay, so they they become the 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 house of the priest, and the priests are divided into these two houses. Eli is a is from the house of Ithamar. Okay, and he uh, Ithamar was kind of a dubious character to begin with, and there there's some some shade thrown on him in other writings. Okay, we really don't have much in in the text about him. But Eleazar is the, is the priest that is favored, and eventually Solomon's going to institute the house of uh, Eleazar as being the, the primary priest for Israel. And so there's something going on with Ithamar, and the fact that, that the, this prophet goes back to Egypt, just like the Israelites couldn't stay in Egypt, Egypt couldn't stay in Israel. Mm-hmm. And this this branch has to be cut off. And this is another connection to to Moses. Now, Eleazar's commissioned at the same time, but there doesn't seem to be the level of corruption within that family branch as there is in Ithamar. Okay. So um by removing the this influence of Egypt, then God is clearing the way for the house of Eleazar, who's going to be Zadok. He's going to be the priest that, that shows up, but he's not going to show up until 2 Samuel 
uh, two fifteen, I think. Okay. So it's like I said, it's a subplot, and it, it's playing out kind of in and out of the the monarchy mm-hmm. uh, narrative. So you kind of have to have an eye for it, and it, it fits with the overall narrative of Samuel because. Samuel, he's a prophet like Moses, and that's something that all of the, the sages and the commentaries agree on. Mm-hmm. Hannah has echoed the words of Moses. I need you to see the affliction of your, of your servant, where God had said those same words at the burning bush. Pharaoh wished to keep the Hebrew girls alive, and ancient commentators say that was Pharaoh's desire to keep the women as sexual slaves. Mm-hmm. What is, what are the... Uh, the Hoffney, sons of yeah, Eli the, yeah, yes, the sons of Eli. That's easier to say. What they're doing to the women there at the, the temple. And Pharaoh wouldn't let the people go to offer sacrifice. And Eli's sons, they're interfering. They're taking the sacrifice mm-hmm. even as they're being offered. So we're, we're seeing that Hannah has recognized all the things that are wrong, and this is what she's stepping up to confront. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and this is our second witness. So this isn't just the, the man of God is the second witness to say, this is really what's going on. This yeah. is what, what the problem is that has to be addressed. Right. So verse 28, we have that summation uh, of priestly duties. You can go to Exodus 28, and it's going to outline the same things that are here. I'm not going to read through it, but it's going to tell you the proper way to give sacrifices mm-hmm. where verse 28, I know chapter 28 and verse 28, uh, the, there, it's a counterpoint. It, you're seeing, it's really revealing how bad and how wrong these, the sons are and what they're doing. Mm-hmm. So uh, verse 29, God calls out Eli's sins. He, and I, I've got that written down because God doesn't tell Eli he's being held accountable for his son's sins. He's being held accountable for his own sins. Right. And his sins are that he despises the sacrifice made to the Lord because he's not actively protecting them. Mm-hmm. And when you value and honor something or someone, you actively protect them. Right. Neglect is just as bad as active evil. The second thing that he's guilty of is honoring his son's more than he honors God. Yep. <laughs> and that's the problem. Um, okay, so number one, I mean, that's, that's a violation, pure and simple, of the first commandment. And you can't do that. But it's also showing that Eli, he could have been someone great. Instead, he, he fails because he can't do what Abraham did. Remember, Judaism starts with the father who says, I can give you my son. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and Yes, was Eli going to be turning his sons over for, for judgment? But it's better to stop your children from continuing to sin mm-hmm, mm-hmm. than to allow them to continue in their own destruction. And that's exactly what Eli does. And in doing so, he loses his sons by hanging on to them instead of correcting them and, and risking, you know, even before God intervened by, by saying, hey, I can't allow you to continue in this. His sons die, where Abraham says, I'll, I'll give you my son, and he receives his son back alive. Mm-hmm. So there, there's that connection, but there's also that contrast. So this is kind of why things, verse 30 kind of tells you why there's so much confusion, because God actually says that he made a promise to Ithamar, and he says that he, he promised that he would be able to go in and out before the Lord forever. And 
now God's saying, this is not going to happen. And this is kind of, the, there's no record of a promise to Ithamar. Mm-hmm. There, there, it's just, it's not there in the text anywhere at all. So we, we know there was something going on behind the scenes that, and this is, that the Bible never really uh, addresses, but this is why there's so many traditions that have been built up about who Ithamar was and, and what it meant for Ithamar to, to be the leading priest. So verse 31 through 33, God promises to weaken the house of Ithamar. He, he says, no one's going to live a long life. And basically the only ones who are allowed to live are going to be kept alive so that they can weep for their fallen house. And everyone is going to die by the sword. So this is, I mean, this curse that, that is being pronounced over Eli's house, I mean, this is a generational curse. This isn't something that's going to stop with just, just Eli and his sons. Now, Ithamar or Eli's house is going to continue to serve in the temple until, like I said, about Second Samuel. Um, and when Solomon says, hey, we're, we're going to institute a new priesthood that's going to stay here, it's still going to be a son of, of Aaron. Mm-hmm. But he's also going to, um, th- there's going to be a problem here. And there, there's long debates in the Talmud is kind of interesting because they say that Yes, a lot of Eli's sons did die very early deaths, but there were certain ones who did continue in righteousness and they were able to extend their life to 40 and 60 years. So that kind of gives you an idea of lifespans at that point in time. Mm-hmm. And, but the idea that even if you live in a cursed ham, family or a, a cursed household, that you can revoke the, the conditions of the curse by continuing to be faithful to God, because that's part of Hannah's prophecy. God is going to protect the faithful. And that was in verse 10 of uh, the chapter earlier. So this, um, this curse, as it plays out, it, it really begins to influence the priesthood and its structure, and therefore the whole religious structure of Israel. And it all begins right here. Mm-hmm. So verse 34, and this shall... And this that shall come upon your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, shall be assigned to you. Both of them shall die on the same day. Now, this is fulfilled in chapter four. And so it's going to take a few more verses to actually get there. And this is pretty common practice with the prophets. If they're Mm -hmm. going to give a far-reaching prophecy, a lot of times they would say, okay, here's an immediate sign that you can be watching for. And this is the reason why prophets can be uh, trusted and, and evaluated in you know, Deuteronomy, if, if their words don't come true, then they need to be put to death. Right. Now, if you're talking a prophecy that's 400, 300 years in the future, then how does a congregation evaluate that? Right. Well, it's through these immediate signs. Mm-hmm. So um, verse 35, and I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind, and I will build him a sure house and he will go in and out before my anointed forever. Again, that word anointed, Mashiach, or Messiah. Almost every commentary um, agrees that the faithful priest is, is Zadok. And like I said, he's, I found it in my notes, Second Samuel chapter 15. That's when he's going to show up. So we get a long time for this to happen. Mm-hmm. So several years are going to pass. And in the meantime, Eli's family, because 
his sons are going to die. Eli's going to die. And basically the only ones who are going to be left alive are kids. These are very young children who are incapable of fulfilling the duties of the priesthood. Mm -hmm. And this is what creates this this major hole in the power structure of, of all of Israel that allows Samuel to slip in and actually take over and become the ruling force in Israel for the time between the priesthood and the um, kings. Mm -hmm. And if this had not happened, then Samuel wouldn't have been in that position to actually shift the nation. Mm -hmm. And so it becomes part of the necessary plan of salvation. Now, I say it becomes a necessary plan. I'm not saying that God, you know, made these horrible men and and put them in this position where they couldn't choose something different. Right. God's going to make his will and purposes known and it's going to happen. But you get to decide what part you get to play. Is it going to happen um, by being faithful or is God working strictly in spite of you? Right. That's the choice we all get to make. <laughs> exactly. And so it, it, the other thing Samuel does, he really unites the three offices of prophet, priest, and king. And with him, the, the three roles are very distinct, but they have overlapping authority. They have overlapping and interconnecting, interdependent uh, functions mm-hmm. that they're they're going to have to work together, and I think a lot of times people forget that it was not God's desire to have a leader like Moses and then a priest like Aaron. They were supposed to be one and the same. Right. It was only because Moses had decided I don't want to do it. He he wouldn't step up. He thought he needed help, and so God says, "Okay, you know, I, I can work with it." Mm-hmm. It wasn't my. It wasn't really what I wanted. If you don't believe me, go back and read Exodus. Yeah, uh, but <laughs> here I am, Lord, send my brother. Yeah, pretty much. And so the 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 what's going on there is we we don't have that complete reunification until the person of Jesus. Right. But we start to see the the three roles coming together. So we can kind of get an idea what, what it looks like when they are functioning as one. Mm-hmm. And what's kind of, I think is kind of interesting, there's almost these little hints of the Trinity in there. And, you know, I don't want to take that too far and I haven't gone into direct application, but I, I can kind of see just, like I said, a little hint. Right. And so the, the thing is too, with, with what's being said here, remember, like with Hannah, prophecy works at two levels. And so this is also, well, could be very well and probably is referring to Zadok. It can be referring to Christ himself. Sure. Because the shore house that's being built, it's us. Right. And in 1 Peter 2, 5 says, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Right. So, and then we have other verses, 1 Corinthians 3, 16 through 17, 2 Corinthians 6, 16 through 18, Ephesians 2, 19 through 22, all talk about how we are the house that God's building up. And it's mm-hmm. not a, a stone building at, or another temple. It really is our lives offered as sacrifices. And the Holy Priesthood, of course, I mean, of the Messiah, the, the verse there in, in Samuel, Jesus is the Messiah. Mm-hmm. So it, the, the, the prophecy works on two levels because we start with this hint of the future, but we also recognize that it's not going to be fulfilled completely until we have Christ reign. Right. So this ends with a promise to Eli 
and it's not a good promise. It says your family will beg to serve me once more just to have a bite to eat. So the the fact that the, the Levites are begging to let me serve you once again, let me come near. And I, I thought about the prodigal son mm-hmm. when with this. And, you know, with God, when we do return and repent, then he he does welcome us back. But this this curse here in this moment, it doesn't look like there's going to be much reprieve from it, at least not as far as scripture is concerned. Right. And so, but Hannah's song, we got to go back to that. This is all being affirmed that God's going to reverse the fortunes. The men that he that began the corrupted leadership of, of, of Shiloh, the ones in authority, the one with power, they're being brought down. Mm-hmm. And the ones who filled themselves with the sacrifices that got, have been offered to God when they shouldn't have, mm-hmm. now they're going to be hungry. And those who had many children, like Eli, who had children to, to take over these, he's going to be forlorn. See, Eli never expected the prophecy to be about him. He, right. he did not see it coming, literally did not see it coming. And he didn't even have the ability to hear when Hannah spoke that the prophecy she was talking about was first going to be about his house, mm-hmm. the house that had allowed the nation to become so corrupt that a woman can be gang raped and killed in the city where the Levites lived. Mm-hmm. And then it's going to carry forward into the future where, where Christ is going to judge all the world for what they're doing. And he's going to to lift up the marginalized and he's going to empower the weak and he's going to give children and fortune to those who thought they had nothing. Mm-hmm. And so it becomes this very powerful story when we look at it in context with the book of Judges yeah. and we stop making it about just what's a proper woman's role. Mm. Yeah, because we have spent a lot of time in the doom and gloom and now we're actually, <laughs> it's like, but wait, here's, right. here comes hope. Well, and if you just... In Judges, it's a horrible story. And it's like, okay, so where's the light? Right. Where, where's the redemption? Right. You don't get it until you get into Samuel. And you've got to remember that, you know, this is happening, not just in that same time. It's in the same place. Right. And, and that the books were supposed to go back to back. Precisely. Precisely. And I, I always was kind of bored by the story of Hannah before I, I started realizing all of this mm-hmm. now i'm like I, I just get so excited because it, it really is one of those stories that points to the value god places on women and when women say hey i want to be a part of what you're doing god goes okay mm-hmm. <laughs> you know mm-hmm. climb on well, we're yeah. going well i mean and, and you look at it and this is going to sound terrible but when you look at and see the story is not just about some narcissistic selfish woman right right it really is like no we someone needs to fix this and I'll, I'll give up a child to make it happen. Yeah. I'll do whatever it takes. And of course that also puts her in the role of God who I'm willing to, to give up my child, my yeah, son. It's a sign act. Yeah. Basically. Precisely. It's yeah. enacted prophecy. Mm-hmm. And that, that's the thing. We've got a woman who, who prophesies with her words, but she's also prophesying with her life. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that that's really cool. And why why aren't we teaching women this in the church? Right. Why why aren't we telling women that God has celebrated your part in in salvation history, mm-hmm. and He's remembered you even whenever sometimes the writing kind of obscured it. Maybe when the translations weren't always great, mm-hmm. 
-hmm. it's still been preserved because God and his holiness thinks women are this important and this message needs to get out. Yeah. So I'm just going to say, you know, if you're a woman, be sharing these (laughs) because if you're not a woman, share them. And because I think this is kind of a new idea uh, for a lot of people because until I dug into the Hebrew, I didn't see it. Right. So So, now that that's really cool. So I think that's a good place to wrap up uh, for now. And thanks everyone for tuning in. If you did, Uh, if you're (laughs) listening to this, if you're hearing my words, I'm assuming you did anyway. Uh, So uh, I don't know. I haven't, I don't actually don't know how to wrap these up. It just kind of happens. So uh, if you liked what you heard, (laughs) be sure to uh, like us on Facebook, share us, and then uh, give us a rating and review on iTunes if you like it. That goes a long way towards helping other people find us. Mm-hmm. Um, we do appreciate it. And if you want to pass us a couple bucks, hit up patreon.com slash ravencreeksc. If you don't want to do that, come be part of the conversation. Raven Creek SC on the social media. Ravencreeksc.com gets you to our, our webpage, which gets you pretty much anywhere you need to contact us. And so thanks everyone for being part of this and we'll be back next week with more of Samuel. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to the Faith and Other Oddities podcast, a Raven Creek Social Club production. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you like what you've heard, please write us a review on iTunes or consider supporting us on patreon.com slash ravencreeksc. As always, thank you for listening and don't forget to join us next week.